that's the thing that really sort of inspires me each day is sort of waking up and my job is to keep the company focused on our on our vision and constantly sort of push the boundaries and explore options and um, keep trying to deliver amazing experiences. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. What does the modern pub look like? We've seen a swell of modern pubs taking food to a new level over the last few decades. But what does it take to deliver excellence in such a large venue and find that balance between eatery and drinking hole? Duncan Thompson is the CEO of the Kick-On Group. Duncan, how are you? I'm great, thanks. It's good to have you on the show. You're pretty busy. You've got like a lot of venues and, and all quite different. Um, tell us a bit about the group. Yeah, sure. So Kick-On Group um, was formed about a year and a half ago and it was um, basically formed to uh, bring in a couple of existing businesses that were operating as um, collective heads in Amada Hospitality. And the view of the group was to, to bring in um, – those venues with with a we we saw an opportunity in 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 the middle of COVID, believe it or not, to uh, to sort of be be ready to expand once once that all all um, came to an end. So the the goal was to sort of drive uh, three parts to our portfolios. One is um, iconic uh, greenfields um, de- developments. So we work with partnerships with de- um, developers such as the recently refurbished Continental Hotel down in Sorrento. Um, and there's a few other on a few others on the map that we we work in partnership. Um, you know, it's a lot of detailed design and, and development. The second part of the portfolio is just large footprint pubs that we we really love. Things like the Plough Inn in, in South Bank and the Terminus in, in Fitzroy that are just um, great gastro pubs that we we feel is a great opportunity to, to build and, and grow. So there's a few of those that we're acquiring. Um, at the moment and then the other part is really more sort of food driven businesses like um, the collective we have in Palm Beach it's got five different kitchens and different cuisines and we see those as sort of we call them scalable businesses where potentially we might replicate the same brand in, in multiple sites so we're sort of on the hunt at the moment to find projects that fit within one of those three portfolio parcels and that helps us kind of grow, grow our business. All very food-driven that we see as a as a future opportunity but the other part is our, our passion for the building it, itself. It's not just about growing for the sake of saying we need to have, you know, 50 venues by the end of 2025 but we need to find the right project and, and how we connect with it and what we believe we can um, deliver amazing experiences through You've done quite a few things in your career, which we can get into, but, you know, creating this group during the pandemic, what sort of challenges were presented that you hadn't previously seen through your career? Yeah, great question. I think with uh, myself and the other directors are all kind of like-minded, um, you know, glasses half full kind of, kind of guys. So when the pandemic was sort of in fruition, as, as frustrating as it was, um, for the industry and no doubt it's it's had a crippling effect but we also thought well there's only one way to get through this and that's to actually get through it so let's picture ourselves on the other side of it where do we want to be and what do we want to be doing um and we felt probably stronger than ever that the the our passion for hospitality was really around that connection to our customers and and creating you know amazing experiences which is more than just great food and great 
beverages, it's it's beautiful atmospheres, it's music, it's lighting, it's that whole puzzle that we all are fascinated about as hospitality operators. So we felt that once COVID had got through, then then the opportunity to well, sorry, the demand from the customers to get back to what they've missed would be would be stronger than ever. So I guess the challenge was around um, once we'd kind of worked that out to go, okay, well, what com- what type of company do we want to have? So we spent a lot of time working through what our our vision and our purpose and what our values would be, and we all kind of really connected to the fact that the the difference between a what was a you know pre pandemic hospitality business that's all about scale. Um, we thought there's an opportunity to actually really build a values driven company. So a we can attract great like-minded people but then b it sort of sets the tone of the type of business that we want to develop what are the differences and the different focuses you know since the pandemic and creating this company with that different sort of approach um what are some of the differences you've noticed we have our staff as our number one focus and most important um and then customers as number two and then um financial metrics number three and we sort of say you know what's right for our customers right for our Sorry, what's right for our staff is right for our customers is good for the bank. So we, we sort of flipped that on the head to go, well, there's enough of us in head office to work out how to manage a P&L. We actually need to be more people-focused primarily on our staff, um, which has led to a shift in our commitment to training, development, you know, hiring, recruitment, all that sort of stuff, and then a really strong focus on tracking customer metrics and, and, and trends. So um, I see that as a big, big shift in, in the industry. We can, you know, complain or bitch and moan about the staffing shortages and things like that, but at the end of the day, it's, it's up to us as hospitality leaders to go, okay, well, I now need to change my model a little bit and I need to invest more in recruitment um, and training and, and development of our people. So we felt that, you know, we had to flip the, the way we managed our business priorities to be staff, number one, to, to get that right. So um, we can then look at our, our customers and financials sort of flow from there. I want to um, go into detail about some of the venues uh, that you have and the impact that that you're having on your staff and and customers. But take us back to when you were a kid. What what sort of role did food play in your family? Food was was always a big thing for us. Um, You know, pretty kind of traditional family upbringing. Um, You know, we we sort of loved the the Sunday roasts and and those sort of things where the uh, mum and dad were probably, you know, a little bit old school where everyone had to sit around the table. It was a bit of a treat if we could eat dinner in front of the TV, Um, which I think kind of sort of um, cemented that notion that you know food is a shared experience for me growing up and that that's the time to connect with with other people whether it be family friends and and, and etc so i think sort of growing up i've always valued food to be more than just what's going in your mouth but it's it's a way to to connect to people did you always have sort of thoughts of a career in hospitality where, where were the first steps into the industry for you um well I left school uh, like a lot of people, then ended up getting a bar job, sort of part time, um, and then kind of fell in love with the <laughs> the, the night lifestyle, <laughs> um, both both in work and, and outside of work. Um, and I just love the energy, the energy, the the environment where you know people you work hard and you get home at sort of three in the morning, you'd be like, wow, you know, that was great, and you're still sort of on this emotional high of of all the all the hype. And so I did that for for a while, and then. Um, 
I was uh, transferred for the company I was working for in into Melbourne, which was kind of a, a sharp, you know, jump straight into Melbourne lifestyle and just kind of kept going from there. But there was a point where I sort of thought to myself, okay, well, this is fun, but, you know, I either need to, you know, step out and find a real job or actually take it seriously and progress into, into management. So that was that's when I started thinking a bit more around, okay, what is the industry? What do I need to learn? You know, how do I diversify my skills so I can gradually sort of, you know, work my way up to, you know, thankfully being in a great position that I am now. Tell us about some of those venues in the early days that really made an impact on that sort of move into, into management for you. Um, well, Bobby McGee's was where I sort of cut my teeth. I was there for about five years. And any of your listeners remember that, that venue was sort of um, – we had one in Canberra and Melbourne and Sydney and um, very concept-driven. It was a concept that came out of America. So training and the way the concept was executed was, was really like a um, – a formula, uh, and that taught me a lot around systems and sequence of service and process. Everything from the lighting at certain times of the afternoon and evening, what needed to be at a certain level, um, the, the the music volume, the way the bars were set up, all the spirits were all in a particular order, the juices in the right right sections, and you know it. It was great because then when it worked and it was sort of a you know, thumping nightclub that was packed sort of five days a week, so we worked really hard. But the the team that was um, that was built in that um, to, to that this day are still some of my best mates. So it was an amazing environment where we all you know worked hard and sure you know probably partied a bit hard, but but it taught us how to work as a team. And, and out of that, you know, to have some amazing um, friend, lifelong friendships was, was great. So I think it was, a, it was a great foundation for really teaching us that processes and systems are imperative. And when you get them right, you know, you know how to drive a venue really well. So moving forward, I sort of, I still use a lot of those systems in the, in the way in which you approach, you know, a sequence of service and the way you can make sure you can execute consistently um, that then allows you to kind of set the foundation and then once you feel like you've got the systems in place then you've got the levers to sort of say okay now we can ramp up you know we can you know create greater efficiencies or increase our spend per heads or whichever dial you're, you're needing to turn at a particular time so it, um, it, it was great and then um, then I got offered a job I think probably the first big sort of role if you like was you know Guy rang me out of the, out of the blue and said, "Look, would you want to come and do a general manager role back in Canberra, which is where I grew up?" So I was like, "Oh, do I really want to go back to Canberra where, where I grew up?" But the, the title was was exciting, you know. I was a young kid, and I thought, well, "Okay," and I just said, "Yep, sounds great." Over the phone, and and then before I know it, you know, they were you know sending me off on a plane. And I distinctly remember sitting in the plane, and you know that time with a pilot you know puts the foot down and the, you start to take off I just sat back in my chair like shit what am I what am I doing <laughs> I don't know how to be a general manager of a, of a big you know multifaceted hospitality business um but then I thought okay too late now you know I'm on the plane I've got to I've got to go so um that was probably a big turning point because when I was there I just thought okay well I'm going to apply all the things that I think need to be done in a business based on how it would have affected me when I was a young person. So I looked at our, our marketing and our concepts and started, I guess, I didn't realise at the time, but probably looking back on it, that was probably where I started to build my my management style, um, was a little bit sink or swim. And 
you know, we, we were lucky enough to win some accolades and we won some awards for, for the work we did down there and, um, you know, it was great. And then I was, you know, shipped back to, back to Melbourne and continued on. Well, you've built a career on having the ability to run multiple sites and be involved in big groups as well. But the Melbourne Arts Centre Precinct was a pretty big um, project that you were integral um, with. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that was uh, a great role. I got approached by a um, recruiter who uh, at the time I was running multiple sites said, oh, would, would you come and work at the art centre? And I was like, no, I'm not really interested in the arts, thank you. And she, God bless her, she was pretty persistent. She goes, no, 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 you need to go and meet them. They, uh, they need someone like you. And anyway, I went and had a couple of meetings and um, it was quite a unique space because I, all of a sudden I said, oh, this is quite, there's quite a, like a diversity of offer here. And, and at that time they had a incumbent catering company Epicure that were running all the catering and and my job was sort of to oversee the operations of Epicure and um, and then look for opportunities, um, you know, activations and, and concepts. But throughout my time there, the discussion around what's the future of hospitality was quite strong and there was, um, you know, uh, opportunities for that whole precinct to, to de- develop, which I believe is now starting to happen. But the... Um, the CEO at some point um, sort of spoke to me and said, well, would we outsource? What would happen if we insourced? Um, and I said, okay, well, that's a different story. So I built this strategy. We called it the future food strategy, and it was all about um, taking control back from the caterers and, and flipping it from a outsourced business to a in, fully in, in-house um which culturally was an enormous shift for the for the art centre, and it, but what it did is it gave us one hundred percent control over the offer. Instead of fighting with the caterer about the price point where they want to increase prices and we wanted to keep prices down so that the patrons wouldn't wouldn't get upset, and and then also financially by having it in source, we were able to reap the benefits of all the supply agreements and rebates and, and the like. So I spent months building this strategy, and then we eventually presented it to the the board of trustees and um, and, they, and they endorsed it, which was great. So my my team that I was working on that were so excited. And then <laughs> my boss at the time he rang me goes, "Well, I got the good news is it's been endorsed and and, and it's away." Uh, he said, "The bad news is they want it done in three months." <laughs> so, so I remember the meeting after I found that out. Oh, I think it was like a Thursday. I called the senior team together. I said, "So great news, we got it." And they're like, "Yay!" I said, "It needs to be implemented in three months." And their faces just dropped. So they were like, "What?" Um, and I also too thought, "Wow, this this is almost impossible." Like we, I can't remember the numbers, but we had to hire. I think it was something like 30, 35 managers and hundred. 120 casual staff. We had to, you know, buy cutlery, crockery. I think there was something like 35 or 40 pallets of equipment that all arrived and we had to unpack it and wash it. Very much like, you know, lots of people have done with very large businesses. But to turn that all around and, um, yeah, that that was a, a huge shift and we had a great team and they executed really well. And I believe, I think, um, they're still running the in-house model down there that's been quite successful. So it was... That was a great kind of turning point in, in the career to sort of see both an outsource model and then bring it in size. 
well, the, the precinct had so many bars and restaurants and cafes and obviously the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl as well. What did it take to manage so many people and get those offerings right? Just really good team. Um, yeah, yes, it's challenging, but we spent a lot of time. And I guess the benefit of a precinct like that is it, it's not busy all the time say different to some of the big sort of pubs that are out there that are just constantly busy you could you had time where you could catch a breath on a monday or tuesday where you can plan and get your rostering right and your forecasting and then you you gear up for those for those peak periods on the weekends um a lot of and also the art center was easier to model because you could model your your labor requirements based on the ticket sales so you, you kind of had a bit of a blueprint to work on that, that does make it a, a bit easier as opposed to a, a big venue where all of a sudden the sun comes out and you're like, damn, I need another 20, 20 staff really really quick. But but the expectation, I think, of the patron was great. We had to have all all options covered from your, your fast grab-and-go for those people that are, you know, park their car and flying in from the city and they've got 15 minutes before they've got to get to the show and they need to have a, a quick grab-and-go kind of concept all the way through to those people that are book their opera tickets two years in advance and they're coming in for a beautiful meal and it's it's the big, high, you know, cultural highlight for them. So, therefore, you've got to have a super premium offer. But you've also got to have it perfectly timed. So, you had to have them in, sat, served and then out in time for the for the show so it was it was good when the whole place was was humming when you had the the art center and as well as my music wall and, and hamer hall um you know it's potentially about twenty five thousand people all within the precinct move, moving around it was um yeah it was great to see it in in full flight from that moment you've done quite a few things um, leading to the kick on group has there been anything that's really stood out that's kind of changed or, or created a path for you um, probably something earlier on was probably the one big change that has resonated with me. It was a period where I think like lots of hospitality people kind of say, oh, I might, might step out. I had an opportunity to get involved in a, in a marketing company, um, which we ended up buying, which ran uh, a drink magazine, which was a publishing business. So we were still involved in the industry, but um, we did that for, for a few years. But that really taught me about, you know, because we would work with uh, alcohol companies that would sort of sponsor advertorials, and then we'd do features on on up and coming venues. And it was all about how to get the right product into the into the cool bars, and um, that was fascinating. And it was probably one pivotal part was well, I was in a meeting with the one of the. Um, marketing directors for coca-cola and they were paying for this advertorial and we were working out which which bars we would feature and and some layout kind of concepts and he said to me goes oh man you know what i would give to to be in hospitality from a brand point of view and i said well I said, what do you mean and he said well and coca-cola probably you know do this better than most but he said we've got print and tv kind of marketing but he said but hospitality from a brand experience is the best thing that you could market a product and i was like okay i guess because you've got sight sound taste atmosphere everything so if you get all that right you can cement a, a brilliant sensory brand experience on any product you have and i was always fascinated by that and that's never sort of forgot about that which has probably been a lot of my passion for the industry is about how to get that that puzzle right and that experience working on that side of the business and not just being operating day in and day out gave you a good understanding of actually you know we are building 
brand experiences, if you know, whether it be food as a part of it, beverage as a part of it, but so is music and lighting and how the staff engage and whether they say yes, sir, or no, sir, or hi, guys, and all those little things that all come back to what kind of experience are we ultimately selling that I think is that whole concept about sometimes taking the time to work on the business as opposed to in the business, you need to step back and go, okay, well, what are we trying to achieve here? Um, even if it's just for a, a great um, pub meal, it's still a brand experience. So that's probably been one of the big pivotal things that, that has changed the way I've looked at look the industry and I'm certainly still explore that with, with, all our, with all our partners. You mentioned a bit earlier the sort of different venues that you have in the Kick-On group and the, and the collective is quite a fascinating project. T- tell us a bit about it and how different, different the offerings are there. Yeah, Collective is really unique. I mean, there's literally five separate kitchens, each with a different cuisine style. Um, and when we bought it just before the pandemic, it, it was one of the first ones that had um, a tablet ordering system. So as people would sit down, they were given this uh, particular tablet and you could order whatever food you wanted and that sort of rang up as a bill and then you paid for it at the end. That was way before any QR code ordering was was out and about. So it was kind of this cool concept that people used to love to come in and, and play around with these, with these tablets and it meant that you could be with a large group and you could order pizzas and I could get dumplings or um, you could do a whole bunch of shared stuff for the, for the table. So they're the customer experience was was fantastic. Um, the challenge was around obviously managing five kitchens simultaneously, five different passes, has two two separate bars, really strong cocktail focus. So again, as a business, when it's really humming, it's um, you know this sort of it looks like organised madness because there's sort of staff running around everywhere, but food comes out really fast and customers really really love it. Um, it, you know, it's something that we know is unique and we're, I mean, we didn't develop it from, from scratch. So we've, you know, obviously inherited it and now the custodians and we kind of really see it as a, as a good concept that, that we could scale up. It is, a, and I think now that QR coding is become a little bit more commonplace, um, it's less unique. So I think the focus now really, like all focus should be, is back on the quality of food and how we can deliver a, an amazing dining experience. But um, it's certainly a, a bit of an icon in the in the Palm Beach area, um, you know. We're, we're really grateful of that that the the patrons are so passionate about it. But it's um, for a small little business, it certainly um, hits above its weight. Because has there been some unexpected um, benefits or positives from from this business model of the collective? Good question. I think what we're learning now is I with now with the adaptation of technology to have had a business that was probably a little bit at the forefront of it in terms of how to use it we're now we're now sort of thinking okay well a lot of our venues use the, the Mr Yum QR code ordering which is which is great but we're also conscious that there's still that element of service so we don't want to be those people that kind of just rely on the technology to be to create the experience so what the collective has done because the process of the way they used to manage the tables while using the technology um, is almost created the blueprint that we're now like, okay, now we've got the QR code ordering in place. We can now overlay the the kind of collective table sequence of service so you get the best of both worlds where I think is, a, is an interesting time now where there's some venues where, you know, you, you're 
QR code you're ordering and you don't see a staff member and you think sometimes if you're in a beer garden and, and you're watching the footy, that's a great experience, but sometimes there's lots of stats coming out now about people wanting a little bit more human connection. So how do you, how do you still create that great sequence of service yet utilise the QR code system um, that create efficiencies and, and increase member head but still have that human connection? So the collectives has, has really been a great blueprint that we can use the way it was built to then apply into some of our other venues. You mentioned that you like to find greenfield sites or iconic sites. How do you select them and and then how do you build the offering? Do you have an example of one of them that you could take us through the steps of that? Yeah, we have, I guess the first point is, um, do we love it? Is one thing we say, like we have uh, in the office what we call the, the wall room where there's lots of pictures and projects up there it's it's an interesting time and the continental and sorrento has probably opened up a lot of doors for us to be connected with various developers and developments so the first thing we always ask ourselves is do we love it is it something that that we love now the continental as an example i mean we we just love the building the history of the building that how it connects to the to the sorrento area um you know, it's fascinating. So, therefore, it kind of starts with that and then you think, okay, what kind of offer do we need to build? Is it multiple? And, again, using the Continental as an example, it's not – we never wanted it to be like a mega pub that you, you could have done. We wanted to go, no, it needs to be specifically individually curated experiences so the local market can have multiple experiences in the same venue. So, they, they can come in with a family and have a casual, great um, – um, pub meal after the beach and then they'll go home and have showers and the next day they might come in for a fancy meal up in Audrey's a fine dining restaurant so for that one as an example it was quite specific to go A we've got the scope of the precinct to develop multiple offers and, and then B we've got the market that will that will enhance that um, some of the other ones we're looking at at the moment are very similar that it is, it is kind of the physical building uh, first um, and how that connects to the to the area. I mean, we're probably turning down more than we're sort of saying yes to without sort of making that sound too too self-pompous, but it's more about there's, there's lots of developments going on, which is great, but there might be just be a development where you're the, the retail space at the bottom of a high-rise in the city, and for us we'd go, that's probably not, doesn't fit into our portfolio focus, but... We really love the iconic, even sort of heritage-style buildings that have some significance. And then our job is to then, okay, how do we then bring out the the life within the within the building through various concepts? That as a group is is sort of what what we like doing. So it's not a cookie cutter approach where we have our model and we just keep keep rolling it out. Some of your venues are, are pubs with great food offerings and cocktails. Um, what? what's your approach? What makes a great um, pub and food offering? Great produce, obviously, is, is the, the first one. So we work really hard with our suppliers. Um, and it takes a bit of discipline because I think once you get a bit of scope, then it's easy to gravitate to, okay, now I can reduce my cost of goods by 3% if I buy this product. And all of a sudden, you know, you can create a bit of a tipping point where you're not necessarily getting the free-range, high-quality chickens. You're now getting a, a, a second tier down. And, and that's why when we flip our metrics and we kind of go with staff, customers, our top two priorities, we, can, we know that that decision is not the right decision, even though it might create a slight benefit in 
in um, in your cost of goods, but it's about going, okay, we want to get the best quality produce at the best price. So we then work a lot harder with our suppliers to say, okay, I want the best chicken, I want the best beef, I want the best seafood. And they'll say, okay, well, the price is here. And then we say, okay, let's work together on how we can get that price down. And it might be how we promote their goods, or it might be you know different different menu creations where we can get the volume up. So that's that's probably one of the most important things for us because it means that we can we can be a real we can put a hand in our heart and, and say to our our punters that these are the best um, the best produce for for the right price. We're not trying to be the cheapest, and we're not trying to be the most expensive. But um, we all. We also then look at our equipment. Um, Jake, first, our group exec chef's a mad fan of the um, Spanish Josper grills, so we've we've got them rolling. And I think if you if you invest in really good equipment and you put a good steak on a on a Josper grill, you know the the flavour is, is is pretty pretty. I was going to say easy to do, but the chefs will kill me for saying that. But it's <laughs> it's easier to, to do. Um, so I think some of those little things get that right first before you start getting too too tricky and trying to do too many things. I think people love the pub menu. It's almost like you don't try to be too creative because people want a great parma. They want a great steak and chips and salad. Um, so are we seasoning the chips properly? Have we got a really nice sort of vinaigrette um, salad dressing? Just those little things that just make make a little bit of difference, I think, is the, the key to a good good pub menu. The last couple of years have impacted all of us in various ways. Has it, has it changed you and your approach to what you do? It's definitely made us more passionate about our people um and i and I, I know that sounds cheesy to say but i do believe that you know a while ago many of us were we used to spruik that but it was just that kind of thing to say but i think now that covid has just cha- changed on one hand you've got people loving hospitality again and i think maybe because they they realize what they miss whether it be going to your local cafe and getting your latte and having a quick chat to your barista um to taking the family out for a for a pub meal or watching the footy with your mates having a few beers i think people really miss that so they've fallen back in love with those big large footprint kind of pubs so but then you overlay that the increased demand with a sort of a staffing shortage has really highlighted the fact that we do need to change the way we recruit and way we develop and we do need to be honourable operators and make sure that we can hire someone straight off the street with the right attitude with zero experience and develop them and not expect that someone's going to walk in off the street with two or three years' experience um, and we can we can bring them in. So it, that, that's been the, the big challenge, I think. But it's also, I think, the long-term effect will be really beneficial for the industry because it's making all the operators be better at recruiting, be better at training, be better at developing our people. And, I mean, we're, we've got a national accredited training um, program called Kick On Academy that, that we do across the country, and that's all about making sure we've got about 128 different courses we can put our staff through and they get the full accreditation at the end. And it's literally about saying if if little Tom comes in and he's 18 years old off the street and he doesn't have any experience but he's got a really good attitude, we can actually sit him down and say, we're, and say okay, if you're interested in being a venue manager one day, here's the pathway of how to get there. So, and here's how we'll support you to do it. Um, and I think you've got to commit to that. And some people might argue, oh, yeah, but Duncan, if, if you do that, then you might spend two, two years training them and then they go and work somewhere else. 
but I would say, well, you know, the risk of not training them is even worse. So if everybody just commits to go, that's that's the way we have to progress the industry forward, I think the long-term effect will be really good because you'll get the right employee with the right employer. Um, you know, they get looked after in a great work environment and, you know, the, the, they enjoy working there. They're going to provide greater experience. That then flows on to greater experience for our customers and kind of everybody wins. So there's a bit of pain at the moment, but I think the change has been all of us focusing on our training and people development, which kind of you could argue should have always been the focus, but maybe we all had it a bit easy when we had too many because someone asked me the other day, is it, is it, is it you know, staffing crisis? Said, well, it wasn't that long ago. We were all complaining that you put it out on seek and you get 50 applicants. You know, now you, now you put it out on seek and you get two. So, you know, maybe it was always a, a crisis. You're part of a group that's making a, a real impact and, and trying to change things in the hospitality sector. But what do you love about what you do? Oh, definitely the people. Um, you know, it's great when you – I think hospitality is one of those things, if, if you love it, you love it for the people, you love it for the fact that you can come and work really hard and, you know, and ultimately what we're trying to do is give people a great time. And then when you see the smiles on their faces and when you see everything work and then you see the staff that we're developing, um, you know, it's really, really satisfying. I think for me now being a CEO is, is, is about growth. So I know that every new site that we, we look to acquire or build or develop, there's a whole a whole team of people that, that I've got to build to develop into that site and then hopefully, you know, that particular site has a bigger impact on the, on the greater area. So... I think that's that's the thing that really sort of inspires me each day is sort of waking up and you know, my job is to keep the company focused on our on our vision um, and constantly sort of push the boundaries and explore options and um, keep trying to deliver amazing experiences. Well, Duncan, um, it's fantastic what you're doing and it's an honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Um, good luck and keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.